Welcome to another edition of Rebellion Research's Educational Series. Today, we're very lucky to have Dr. Gleb Zapersky, an old friend of mine who's a professor from Ohio State University who left recently to focus on his new disaster avoidance company. And he's also a best-selling author of multiple books and a complete wealth of information on the subject of decision-making. Now, decision-making is something that we take very seriously as an educational and technological uh, conversation. We, in fact, had an edition just two weeks ago with uh, two professionals where we just discussed how to make intelligent decisions using uh, mathematics. And today, Dr. Zaborski is gonna come on and tell us his view on this. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Zaborski. You're very welcome, Alex, and thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Oh, so, you know, let's let's cut right to the chase. Everyone assumes that you should go with your gut. That's obviously something that you know we should start uh, today's conversation with. What is your reaction to that? It's horrible advice. It's terrible advice, and my that's why my one of my books is called "Never Go with Your Gut: How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters." We are not wired to make good decisions with our gut. Unfortunately, people like to go with their gut. It's what makes them feel comfortable. It's what makes them feel good. No wonder you go with your gut. But think about what happens if you go with your gut, let's say, in how we eat. Think about that. You know, when somebody leaves a box of donuts in the break room, what happens to you with your gut? Well, if you start eating a donut, you know, you're probably going to be pretty hard to stop at one donut, right? Oh. You're probably going to have more than one donut. One donut, you know, two donuts, maybe going to those three donuts. You should not be doing that. You know that yourself, but you will probably do it. Or let's say if you're starting to eat some ice cream, you know, hey, yeah, there's a half gallon of ice cream. You know that a serving of ice cream is half a cup of ice cream, but you know, show me the person who can easily have half a cup of ice cream. I don't know this person. This is not a natural thing to do. But if we go with our gut, we will have much more ice cream and many more donuts, chips, whatever, it, whatever your choice of poison than we should have. So you have learned in that area of your life to not go with your gut, in your diet, in your eating. <laughs> even though you want to, even though we're triggered by sugar. And here's the underlying principle. Our gut reactions are adapted for the savanna environment, not the modern environment. In the savanna environment, when we came across a source of sugar, in that savanna environment, when we lived in small tribes, uh, we were hunter-gatherers and foragers, honey, for example, bananas, apples, it was incredibly important for us to have as much of it as possible. That's how we survived and thrived in the savanna environment. And we still have those instincts. That's what we're wired for. So in our diet, in our eating, we have very bad instincts, just as we have in our business decision-making. I mean, our professional life in the hunter, forager, and gatherer environment involved you know, hunting and foraging and gathering. That is not what our life is like. I mean, think about the fight or flight reflex. That's our primary response to threats. Primary response to threats, the fight or flight reflex. In the savanna environment, the threats we faced were intense, immediate, in the moment. You know, saber-toothed tigers. You might have heard of this as the saber-toothed tiger response, when we had to jump at 100 shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. But in the modern environment, having the fight-or-flight reflex leads to buying high and selling low in the financial market and very many other very bad decisions. For example, about COVID-19. So many people are making horrible decisions about COVID-19 or about who to hire or so many other bad business professional decisions that because of how our gut is wired, the fight or flight reflex and other reflexes. What, what about when that individual gets a high amount of skill? So my, my first thought is comparing JFK Jr 
whose you know, gut reflex was to continually turn left when he was not sure what to do in his plane, and that caused the plane to go into a death spiral, and that's you know, what, what killed him. If you're, if you're in a plane and you're already going left, and then you turn left again, you, know, you lose all of Bernoulli's principle, you have no more flight, you go right downwards. But then I think about you know, Captain Sully Sullenberger, you know, and you know, maybe there, that's an example of where you have so much preparation that the gut is already become somewhat of a wired machine, if you will. And so would you agree that if you have enough preparation or enough skill, you can turn the gut into kind of more of a mechanism, if you will? What you're doing, we should not call that gut reflex because what you're doing is overriding your gut. You remember for those folks who you know, are my age and who had to learn to drive without an automatic, uh, drive, without an automatic brake, right? Yeah. You had to learn to, to, to not press on the brake, yet to learn to pump the brake when you're going into a spin. When, you know, that is not intuitive at all. Or when you're going into a spin, you have to learn to turn into the spin, not out of the spin, when your car is spinning in, on some ice, for example. Those are not intuitive things. You have to learn those sorts of behaviors, just like Captain O'Sullivan had to learn a whole set of behaviors that were not intuitive at all. So when you're doing that, you're not going with your gut. You're going with a healthy learned reflex, just like going back to earlier in the conversation when you're choosing to eat salad. I have to tell you, nobody's born liking salad. <laughs> Let's just be honest. You know, nobody's born liking salad, right? Learned you like have to learn. You have to learn to like it. You have to learn to choose to go for the salad or at least the sliced fruits instead of the donuts or the ice cream. That is a learned habit. That is not your gut reaction. That is not your gut reflex. That's something that you learned and you can trust those reactions because you learned them and you know from extensive experience that they serve you well in certain situations. So after you've learned, and those are very specific situations. You've probably heard of the idea that we need 10,000 hours in order to have mastery in an area. Yes. That is a common idea. And that is because we have to override our gut. Otherwise, you know, why would we need mastery, right? We'd just be good with how we are. Well, that's actually a great point. I never thought about it that way. Yes. We, lit we literally have to, to beat out our gut. Essentially, our gut is, you know, you know, Hobbes always said the passionate man is the stupid man. And training essentially hammers out the passions and creates more of a mechanism, you know, less of a human being, if you will. And so that, that is something I like about what you teach. I, I think a lot of what you teach has, has to do with preparation and mindfulness. But let's talk about, I know you have a new book coming out. Can you tell us about that, please? Of course. So the book is called Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. And like you talk, said just now, we react very badly to things like the coronavirus pandemic. There's slow moving, high impact, low probability threats. Now, go, just to mention about what you're talking about with Hobbes and kind of the beating out that instinct, I wouldn't say it's beating out. It's more taking someone from that natural primal state into a civilized modern state. And that goes against very much what a lot of people advise. You know, if you think of Tony Robbins, who says, be primal, be savage, that is very bad advice. You want to not follow your instincts 
instincts. You want to not be primal and savage because we don't live in that primal environment. We live in the modern civilized environment and becoming civilized from going to primal to civilized, from savage to civilized, natural to civilized is essentially adapting to modernity. So my book, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic talks about how we need to adapt to this modern condition with, because in the savannah environment, we never had to deal with major pandemics because we lived in small tribes. So how are you going to get a pandemic from one tribe to another, right? Not really going to happen. It's a tribe of 15 people, 150 people at most. That is not something that we need to worry about. In the modern environment, we actually need to worry about pandemics. That's one example of a major disruptor. In the Savannah environment, we didn't have these disruptors. Our world was going to be much the same. You know, we can use the past to predict the future pretty easily. The main change would be change of seasons, you know, fall, spring, summer, fall, and so on. So those are things that would be changed in that environment. In the modern environment, we have so many changes. I mean, think about the smartphone. How many changes has that brought into your life? in just the last you know, decade or so. That has been a major source of change, technological changes. Then human-caused changes, let's say the fiscal crisis of 2008, 2009, completely human-caused, very major disruptor. A lot of people didn't understand and anticipate the effects of this crisis. And of course, COVID-19, it's more of a disruptor in many ways than the 2008-2009 fiscal crisis. It's a combination of a natural and human-caused disruptor. But people aren't treating it this way. They're falling into what's called the normalcy bias. The normalcy bias is where we tend to predict the future based on the past. We feel like we want to get back to normal. We feel like we want to get back to January 2020 with that, that lifestyle, that mentality. So many people are discarding cautions. They're thinking that, well, okay, if I act like everything is normal, then everything will be normal. And that is, you know, if I think that the virus will go away, therefore it will go away. It's an irrational, fallacious thought pattern, and it makes them rush into very many bad decisions, but that is just how we're wired. We're wired to make these bad decisions, and that is one of the many reasons why we make bad decisions around COVID-19. So, you know, if you're someone like a, you know, a wedding planner or, or, you know, a caterer, and all of a sudden the business you've created for 20 or 30 years just doesn't exist. Do you wait six months, a year, two years for this to come back? Do you change or, I mean, is, this, is, that, is that kind of more of life pivot decisions? Do you, you, know, do you respond to something like that? Or I guess, what's your take on, on that? Well, I can tell you that as a speaker, my primary source of income is in-person speaking. So that's a large component of my income, doing in-person speaking, doing in-person consulting, doing in-person coaching. So a lot of that disappeared in the pandemic. So I'm coming from that same sort of industry, in-person consulting, coaching, speaking, and that was a big problem. And how I'm approaching it and how I'm advising very many of my clients who are in similar industries to mine to approach this, people for whom I'm a coach, people for whom I'm a consultant, is to understand that this will be around for a very long time. Our intuition is to greatly underestimate the impact of the pandemic. Now think about, let's say, the vaccine, right? How's that going to play out? Now, vaccine is really, we don't have effective treatments for this. The only treatments we have are things like remdesivir 
there in this new steroid treatment that decreases the death rate by maybe 10 to 20%. That is not an effective treatment. The only way that we'd have an effective treatment is a vaccine. Now, if you look at a vaccine, the best case scenario for us getting a vaccine approved is sometime by the spring of 2021. That is the best case vaccine scenario. And that is very unlikely, but let's trace it out. Let's see what happens. So we have approval of spring 2021. What do we need to do that? We need to do mass production of it, mass distribution, mass vaccination of people. Now we know that only around 50 to 60% of the American population are ready to take a vaccine. So a lot of people don't want to take a vaccine. That'll take a major educational campaign. But even before that, producing enough of the vaccine will be a major issue. And then distributing it. The government has not shown a high level of competence. Of course, this would be the federal government so far in creating enough tests, personal protective equipment, ventilators, and so on for all of our needs. So we should not assume that it will show a high level of competence. So that process will probably take at least a year with even a moderate level of competence significantly higher than the government has shown so far. So we're getting into the spring of 2022 in the best case scenario with a vaccine, one of the two vaccines that are in third phase trials, which is the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, showing a high level of 90 plus percent effectiveness. The likelihood that that will happen, 90% plus effectiveness, is incredibly low. If you're looking at the history of creating vaccines, the large majority of the early vaccines failed. So it's very unlikely that one of these two vaccines will be successful. It's much more likely that we'll get a successful vaccine in 22 or 23 or 24, which pushes out, you know, give that another year for all the production distribution vaccination. Realistically, it pushes us into 23, 24, 25, 26 for when we'd have a widely available vaccine and the population is widely vaccinated. So that is the scenario that we're looking at. That's another three years, four years, five years. You can't maintain a wedding business in that time. You can't maintain a catering business at that time. That's why I, for my speaking, for my training consulting, I'm shifting to pretty much all virtual. So doing all virtual speaking, consulting, training, and that's kind of building up most of a, a new business, mostly from scratch, because that's not how I was doing business before. But knowing that it's going to be a three, four, five-year timeline horizon, that's a wise decision. And that's the kind of thinking that you want to be using to approach this. What is the likelihood? What's the probability? What are the possibilities? And what do you need to do to adapt and survive and thrive in this, in this new abnormal? What do you think you've learned personally from this uh, crazy pandemic? Hmm. I think I'll learn exactly how poorly human beings function when met with a serious long-term low impact low probability, slow moving, high impact crisis. And I'm seeing so many, so many failures. I mean, I've been shocked by how badly the US is handling it. And I've been shocked by how badly many, many businesses are handling it. You know, I was just contacted by a company, major oil and electric gas company that uh, uses oil gas plants to coal plants to produce electricity. And they want me to facilitate their strategic planning. This will be a virtual facilitation. And when I started talking to them about, hey, what about how are we handling COVID-19? They're telling me that, well, we're treating it mostly as a day-to-day -day issue. We're just not treating it as part of our strategic plan. And that's ludicrous. This will be at least, you know, the, in the most optimistic scenario, this will be a two-year situation. But you, you, you might hope for the best, but you never plan for the best. You plan for the worst. That's strategic planning. Yes. <laughs> that's the wise approach to strategic planning. Plan for the worst. Expect, exactly. You know, exactly. Somewhere in between.
And they aren't even doing that. They're just treating it as a day-to-day -day issue. So I'm really pushing them to make sure to, to, to actually include this in their, their strategic plan. But if they didn't happen to contact me, and they didn't contact me because they contacted me because of my previous work in strategic planning, not because of my work on COVID-19. So if they didn't contact me about it, they would have been in a lot of trouble. And of course, the US government, the US society, population, so many companies, and so many individuals and professionals are in a lot of trouble because they're not looking and pivoting their strategic plans, their long-term plans for the future. Whereas very many European countries and businesses and organizations are doing a much better job with this. Very many Asian ones are doing a much better job on this. I mean, far from all places in Latin America, many places are doing pretty badly, but I'm surprised by how badly the US businesses and US government, really? federal and state are doing it's like a tale of two economies. You've got, you know, one whole group of businesses that have uh, adapted and started thriving in the COVID environment. And you have this other group of businesses that still don't really know what to do and are just kind of, you know, that you're pivoting to pivoting to pivoting to pivoting. And yet I digress. And so I've never felt like the U S economy had so diverged in a sort of binary way where you really only had the two groups, one, mm -hmm growing and thriving and adapting, one not. And so that's, yeah. you know. that's a good, that's a good, good way of phrasing it. And I've seen a lot of high tech companies. I mean, I, you know, I have a couple of high tech companies that contacted me to help them facilitate their strategic plans because they want to pivot effectively with COVID-19. So you see a lot of high tech companies doing really well, but a lot of traditional companies not doing well in the oil industry. A number of traditional companies like nationwide. So I live here in Columbus, Ohio, so go Bucks. Nationwide insurance, major traditional company is doing really well, actually. It's pivoting, it's really trying to do a lot of things wisely, but many older companies are not. And I think they're following the examples of many government officials too much who are underplaying the importance and the impact of the pandemic. Very wise words. Uh, this was a great uh, conversation, uh, so much fun. Uh, I really appreciate this, Dr. Sapersky, and uh, you know we'll, we'll talk again uh, soon. We keep the rebellion series at you know around 18, 19 minutes because the attention span of today's world has really gotten very short. So uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon, Glove, and uh, stay safe. Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate you inviting me.